0: Billy Graham. Amen. Braun Clifford. Chuck Templeton. Three men. Everybody knows Billy. Everybody knows Billy's ministry. Probably nobody in modern history to preach has preached to anybody, probably in any history, has preached to as many people about Jesus Christ as Billy Graham. But what about Chuck Templeton? What about Bron Clifford? Have any of you guys, unless you have been told this story before, have you ever heard of those ministries, Bron Clifford and Templeton's ministry? Well, all three of those men started off about the same time, back in the 40s. In fact, they used to pack out stadiums and auditoriums too. One seminary president called Templeton the most gifted, talented preacher in America. Him and Billy Graham were very close friends. They started with an organization called Youth for Christ. Most people thought that Templeton was going to be the one who would be the absolute greatest preacher of all time of the gospel. In fact, one magazine called him the Babe Ruth of evangelism. Now, Bron Clifford was another one that was around their same time frame during that mid-40s. And a lot of people believed he was the most powerful preacher in a 100 years. People would actually line up for hours to hear him preach. They would make lines back in the 40s to hear him preach. They said at the age of 25, Bron Clifford touched more lives, influenced more leaders, and set more attendance records than any preacher in American history. When you think of Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, some of the great preachers of all time. In fact, there were national leaders back then who were vying to get his attention. You know the way people would want Billy to come up to the White House? You had national leaders reaching out to him. That's how powerful he was. He was tall, handsome, dashing. In fact, there was a movie called The Robe. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's an old movie. It's a, a, a kind of a re- religious movie, but they reached out to Brian Clifford to play the starring role in that movie. To everybody all around, he seemed to have everything. And they all launched out together back in 1945. But you've never heard of Templeton or Bron Clifford Wine because they appear to have been apostates. By 1950, just five short years later, Templeton had left the ministry. He left the ministry. He pursued a radio career. He was an announcer and a newscaster. <coughs> Well, there you go. That explains it all right there. He told the world that no longer did he believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He became an atheist. By 1950, this future Babe Ruth was no longer even in the baseball game. Much less pursuing it. By 1954, Bron Clifford lost his family, his ministry, and his health and he eventually lost his life due to addiction to alcohol. Financial irresponsibility left his wife and two down children, two down syndrome children, penniless. This once famous preacher that presidents and other people wanted to see died of cirrhosis of the liver at the old age of 35 in a run-down hotel on the edge of Amarillo, Texas. He died pitifully, dishonorably. And some pastors out in Amarillo got together, collected enough money, bought him a cheap casket, and they shipped his body back to the East Coast where he was buried in a pauper cemetery. In 1945, all three of these men, you would thought, they were it. within 10 years, only one of them was still on track for Jesus. Why? Well, in the Christian life, it's the same like golf. It's not how you drive, it's how you arrive. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. Do you know that only one out of every 10 men that start ministry at the age of the 20s, in their early 20s, serve the Lord until they're 60. Most of them leave. When I went through some ministry training back in 1996, Billy Graham's brother-in-law was one of my mentors. He said, look around, we were. there were 30 of us. And he said, out of this 30, by the time you guys are in your late 50s, early 60s, there will only be five or six of you left. He's right. I've already seen guys. I think I told you guys last week I was speaking in Louisiana. There was a guy up on the board who was speaking, who was a Promise Keeper speaker, who got arrested just a few weeks ago or a few months ago for soliciting prostitution. He's now not only no longer in ministry, he got fired from a secular job he had too. What happened? They fall away due to immorality, pride, discouragement. But really, the bottom line for all of them is they fall away because of apostasy. You know what apostasy is? We we hear that word. Apostasy is what we're going to look at today. It's the fourth warning in the book of Hebrews. We've looked at three warnings. The book of Hebrews, for you, Keith, and, and Sam specifically, because... you've not been here and had the benefit of walking with us through the journey you know the bible is not just a collection of sayings it's actually an unfolding story and then in the new testament a lot of it is letters that were written to people just like this that were meeting and they were struggling with particular issues and as they struggled some of the leaders like the apostle paul or peter or james or john would write a letter to them and say hey This is the theology. This is the study that God wants you to understand so that then you can go live. Because before you can do, you have to be. And so he wanted these people to understand. And and this particular group of people were struggling because it was about 60 to 70 years uh, A.D. and um, about 30 years after Jesus had died and resurrected. And so what happened is the Jewish people... Were, were involved in temple worship, even though when Christ died, guess what happened? The veil was torn to the Holy of Holies, and Jesus did away with the requirement for temple worship. But it was there were still people doing it, but one group of people in and around Rome had formed a faith community. They had left temple worship, and they were being pressured by Jewish people to go back and <laughs> put temple worship... Uh, things in with what they were doing with jesus in other words they could believe in jesus but they still had to do sacrifice they could believe in jesus they still had to go in and do all the rituals and they were being pressured by these jewish people to do that but they were all in they had believed in jesus they weren't apostate they were true believers but they were starting to falter a little bit and want to go back And so he's writing to warn them. That's group one. Groups two that he writes in this same faith community are people who had intellectually bought into Jesus the same way Braun Clifford bought into Jesus, the same way Chuck Templeton bought into Jesus, but it was all up here. It never penetrated the 18 inches from the head to the heart. And because it never got into their heart, it was just something they could do up to a point. But something drove them away. And so the question I have for you today is what is it that's going to drive you away from faith in Christ? Is it money? Is it a situation you don't like that you can't fix and you are angry with God? I've known lots of people who walk away from God for that. But you cannot walk away from Him if you're truly bought in in your heart, regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, because the Spirit will never let you do that. It won't. And stay on the earth. Because our role as God's children is to be a viable witness for Him out in the workplace and out in the world, wherever we go. So if our role is to point people to the one true living God, how are we doing that if we're continually living a pattern of unrepentant, selfish choices in our life where we do what we want, not what God wants? Because we don't care about God. All we want is a ticket on a train going to heaven after we die. Here on earth, we don't care about God. And that's not the way he designed us. Bron Clifford and Chuck Templeton, they didn't get that. And, and, and it appears they were apostate. Truly, nobody can judge anybody else because we don't know what happened during the last moments of their life. They could have had a thief on the cross moment where at that moment they realized, but by all evidence, it appears as if they were truly apostates. And then the, there was a third group in that faith community and basically that group had not yet made up their mind. And you know what's Interesting. The apostate, you can't be apostate if you don't have all the information. The word apostate is only used twice in the New Testament. And what it really means is, it's not even used in this text. The idea of apostates is there, but the, the actual word is only used in a couple other places. And what the word means is when you've got full knowledge of who Jesus is and you reject him. Now, I can tell you this, that you can't preach the gospel without having been enlightened to what that full knowledge is. So, Braun Clifford and Chuck Templeton certainly had been exposed to that knowledge. And he uses the word enlightened in our text today. And, and what that means, that doesn't mean that you've actually truly been regenerate what that means is that the holy spirit has allowed you to understand god's plan for how we connect with him through jesus and you understand who jesus was and what he did and what he did for you and you know you need him but you simply reject him and there's lots of ways to reject him you can reject him just outright by saying i don't want jesus in my life Or you can reject Him by saying you have Him when you really don't. And so, as we look at this, just to give you a quick, real quick uh, kind of journey through from one, the whole theme of Hebrews, this letter, is Christ is supreme to everything. Every other system, uh, every other... um, For for them, it was the Jewish system of sacrifice. But listen, Oprah Winfrey... Oprah Winfrey said a few weeks ago, oh, there's many paths to God. But they all have to go through Jesus. They, you, you can't... It, Jesus made a very exclusive claim. Buddha doesn't get you to God. Krishna doesn't get you to God. Hinduism doesn't get you to God. Jesus is the only bridge between man and God. He's the only one that can do it. For 2,000 years, people have tried to destroy the message that Jesus is the only one that does that. And even today, we live in a culture that's very pluralistic. We invite all these people to come in, and so what's one of the things that's happened is, because the church has been impotent and not been Bible witnesses for Jesus, now you have people who actually believe that, well, you can be a Buddhist and you can be a Christian. Two diametrically opposed things. One says Buddha gives enlightenment. One says, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. Nobody can come to the Father except through me. And so in Hebrews, we see the first warning in chapter 2 where he says, don't drift from the message because these people received the message in that second group who had not fully bought in, they were wanting to drift. So the first warning in Hebrews 2 is don't drift from the message. The, the second warning is in chapter 3 and it says, don't harden your heart. And the writer gives him an example from the Old Testament and he's going to do it in our text today, but he quotes Psalm 95 where he says, don't harden your hearts like they did in the wilderness. Because what happens, when they saw God's power on display, ten times God did miracles in Egypt. It was depicted in a movie with what's the guy who was the NRA spokesman for so long? Carlton Heston. He played Moses. Ten miracles. And God leads them out. They saw the power of God on display. And you know what they did when they got out there and they got in a bind. Instead of recognizing that God was powerful and could do anything, they started complaining and saying, we want to go back to this pagan country. We want to go back to the pagan country that worships idols. Because we were better off there. You ever felt that way? I know guys who have verbalized to me, you know what, I was better off. I mean, what good does it do to believe in Jesus? Yeah. What good does it do? And so for the the children of Israel harden their heart and in Psalm 95, the psalmist writes about it and he says don't harden your heart like they did in the rebellion in the wilderness. Ten times God did miracles in Egypt and guess what? Ten times in the wilderness they hardened their heart over food, over protection, over water, over food again, and over water again. And so, even, and so he reminds him in chapter 3, he says, don't harden your heart. Then in uh, Hebrews 5 and 6, he gives the third warning. And the third warning, he says, is don't waver. Don't fluctuate. Be all in. Don't keep trying to go back to your old ways. You ever have a problem with that? <laughs> Man, human nature's tough, isn't it? why do I keep going back and struggling with the same things when I know they're going to take me to the same place? Anders, I told you to read a book called It's Not My Fault. And in that book by Cloud and Townsend, it says if you keep doing the same thing, you're going to keep getting the same results. Why do we think something's going to change? And he says, don't waver. And I think of Elijah back in Second um, Kings where... He's in this battle with all these false prophets. And he tells the people of Israel who were really swept up in the Baal worship, the Asherah worship, these idols, uh, because they're praying to them for rain. Oh, they love God, but they, they conflated Baal and Asherah worship in there. And, and Elijah goes, how long are you going to keep limping? It says in one text. But the word actually means dancing. How long are you going to keep dancing between the bales and God? And for us, it's the world. How long are we going to keep dancing between our worldview system, which we think we don't need Jesus, we don't need God in our life, unless we get in a really bad jam? That's the third warning. In chapter 7, remember, we talked about Melchizedek. Sam, have you ever heard of Melchizedek? No, sir. Keith, have you ever heard of him? He's in Genesis 14. And he's also in Psalm 110. The reason he's important is he was a king and he was a priest. And in the Jewish culture, the priest had the most important function because they served as a go-between between between sinful, unholy man and a holy God. So every year they had to perform sacrifice. Well, Melchizedek was pre-Levi because every priest had to come from the tribe of Levi. And so the Jewish people in this place that the letter to Hebrews was written were struggling with, well, if Jesus is our priest, He's not from the tribe of Levi because he came from the tribe of Judah. And the the other important thing is he's a king and everybody wants a priest that can sacrifice and forgive them of their sin. Nobody wants a king in their life. Jesus and Melchizedek were the only two priest kings in scripture. I never knew that. I've been a believer for over 45 years. I've never heard a pastor teach on Melchizedek. I've never heard the connection until we worked our way through this. And I'm going, oh my gosh, this is in Messianic Psalm back in Psalm 110. And that's in chapter 7. Chapter 8 was about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Most people have this concept that in the Old Testament, God's a God of wrath. The New Testament, He's a God of grace. Let me tell you, in the Old Testament, He's a God of love too. the New Testament, He's a God of wrath too. And we're going to see that today. Chapter 10, we talked about our benefits from following Christ because we don't need a sacrifice anymore. We don't have to go through the system. We just trust in Jesus. It's Jesus alone. So we've been freed from ever for our guilt, for selfishness. We've been made clean forever. We've been secured forever and perfected forever. And we're going to see that in the text today. We Basically, we have 24-7 access to the Creator God. But we don't live like that. 24-7 access. We have assurance. And He says, so because we have access and assurance, He says, I want you to draw near to Me. You ever feel like you can't draw near to God? Because you've messed up, you've blown it, you don't have faith, you struggle, and you go, I can't go, I can't read my Bible. I made such a mistake in my life. I felt that way. That's what the enemy wants you to think. But you know what Jesus wants us to believe and know is what he wrote, uh, God wrote through this letter to the Hebrews. He says, Draw near when you're in need. <clears throat> well, when do you most need Him? Is when you've blown it the worst. You see, I believe with all my heart, no matter what uh, Braun Clifford or Chuck Timbleton had done, even at the end of their life, had they cried out to Him, He would have embraced them like He did the thief on the cross who did nothing good His whole life that we know of, but said, Jesus, will You remember Me when You come into Your Kingdom? So He says, draw near, hold fast, And consider how to stimulate one another to good works. That's what he says. And that's in verses uh, 22, 23, 24, 25 in chapter 10. And today we're in 26 through 29. So when things get tough because of temptation, persecution, or just, you know, Maybe because we do love Jesus. What if you you love Him and you have a tough time because of that? Do we hold fast or do we compromise? Do we turn away? When we struggle with temptation or failure, do we run from God or to God? An apostate is somebody who receives the full knowledge and then rejects Him. that's in the text today so i'm going to read it's 26 through 39 in hebrews chapter 10 and i'm going to read this text and as i read it then i'm going to come back and we're going to look at basically three things here in this text one the definition of apostasy, which I've kind of told you, but we're going to see it from Scripture too. We're going to look at the perils of apostasy. What happens if you become an apostate according to what God's Word said, not what I think. And then third, we're going to look at protection from apostasy. And hopefully it'll be encouraging to you. So the definition, we're going to look at what happens, uh, the perils of apostasy, the dangers of it, and then the protection from it. Starting in verse 26 of chapter 10. What was the second one? The perils of apostasy. So verse 26 says, for if we go on sinning deliberately. Let me just stop there. Sinning has a different meaning for a lot of different people. Some people think sin is getting drunk some people think sin is doing drugs some people think sin is murder do you know what sin is the word sin means to miss the mark it literally is a Greek archery term so when the shooter would shoot at the target anything that wasn't in the center of the target he would go sin so sin is anything that misses the mark with God anything that's less than what God wants for you Sometimes the greatest sins aren't what we would consider the greater sins. And by the way, there are different levels of sin. In John 19, Jesus said somebody has a greater sin, so there are different levels. That means there's different levels of punishment also. Chapter 10, verse 26 again. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. For a fearful, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will not will come and not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls may god bless the reading of his word verse 26 lays out the definition of apostasy. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. He's not talking about a momentary lapse where you struggle. He's not talking about you're walking down the street and you see a woman that makes you lust after her and you give into that and you linger and you look and you start imagining what life would be like with her instead of somebody that you're supposed to be with. He's not talking about that. Not a sin of ignorance. I didn't know that was wrong. What he's talking about is a voluntary, habitual, unrepentant pattern of rejecting what you know God wants you to do versus something that's just a moment of weakness. In other words, it's planned, willful, unrepentant. Oh, but I love God. I love Him. And how does Jesus say that we will know that we are His? Those that love Him do what? Keep His commandments. His commandments aren't burdensome. His commandments aren't harsh. He says, my yoke is easy. A yoke was a thing that held two animals together as they plowed a field. He said, come alongside me. My yoke is easy. There's probably no greater example in Scripture of an apostate than Judas Iscariot. fact, we use his name to describe people who betray people. Can you imagine walking with the Son of God for three years in the flesh right beside you, walking, hearing everything he taught, watching every miracle he did, pretending to be his, only to discard him? Peter, on the other hand, who denied him, was not an apostate. What's the difference between the two? Peter and Judas. Have you ever thought about that? Think about it. you got Peter over here who says, I don't know that guy. Three times when he had an opportunity to stand right there. Oh, Lord, I will never leave you, Lord. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Why is he in the kingdom and Judas isn't? Why? yeah there's a verse in second Timothy chapter 2 that, that talks about that. And Paul when he was writing to young Timothy, he was it's a very instructional book but over in 2 Timothy 2 verse 12 it describes Judas and it describes Peter. And it says simply this, if we deny him, he will deny us. And you go, wait a minute, Peter denied him, right? But there was a difference between Peter's denial and Judas' denial. Peter, his denial was only temporary. Peter ultimately gave his life for Jesus. He was crucified upside down years later. Remember what Jesus told Peter? Peter, you're going to deny me. You're gonna, Satan has asked to sift you. In other words, Satan has asked to test you. You guys ever feel tested? You, th- you think it's just random, these struggles you have with your health, with your wife, with your kids? I had a daughter that for nine years didn't speak to me. She went on mission trips with me. I thought we were like this. She, she was reading Jonathan Edwards, and if you don't know who he is, he was this brainiac preacher back in the 1800s. Just unbelievable, gifted preacher. She was reading him at the age of 15. And then for nine years, she wouldn't speak to me. It hurt my soul every time I thought about her. She called me a couple of nights ago. Dad, can I talk to you about, I'm trying to witness to my neighbor and I'm just hitting this brick wall. Because last December she repented and we came together and it's been a beautiful reconciliation. But my wife and I were talking, even though we had issues, even though there was blind spots for her, she was loyal to the Lord ultimately. And, and, and I believe she is. And we've always seen that in her. But there was always something about Judas. But Judas was so good that even the disciples couldn't spot him as a fake. If you would have lived back in the 40s, you would have saw Brian Clifford and, Cliff, uh, and Chuck Templeton, and you would have said, like everybody else, Chuck Templeton's going to be the greatest. Because Billy Graham wasn't anything to shake your fist at, man. He was just like, Billy Graham was a simple country boy from up in North Carolina who got up early in the morning, milked cows, did all. Nobody thought he was going to do anything, but God knew he had his heart. The reason God used Billy Graham is not because he was a great speaker, he used him because he had a heart for him. But that's the definition of of apostasy. To know the truth and then turn your back on Jesus. To know the truth and then reject the truth. That's what it says. To willfully choose a pattern of unrepentant sin. Conscious, willful, final rejection of Jesus. I don't want this. I'd rather just not believe True believers also always persevere. In 1 John 2.19, and you've heard me say this a lot, it says they went out from us, but they were not of us. The reason they went out is because they were never really part of us. And people go, well, what about Brian Clifford? Or what about Chuck Templeton? You know, could it happen to me? I mean, how do I know I'm not an apostate? I think you always should examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. That's what Scripture teaches. Sometimes we may just be spiritually sicko. And I I like to use vital signs with people. You know, when you go to the doctor, they check your vital signs, don't they? And and, in the same way, do you have a a desire to read God's Word? Well, no. No. I mean, I guess I should, but I don't. Well, you might have a a spiritual problem. Maybe spiritually sick. Do I I engage with God on a daily basis? When I wake up, do I acknowledge that He's my King, that I serve Him, and I want to do what He wants to do? Or do I just call Him when I need Him? Like an ATM machine. Because God ain't an ATM machine. He's the Creator of the universe. He created you. He owns you. But He also allows you to make a choice. You have a human responsibility too. 1 John 3.9 says this, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he can't keep on sinning. In other words, if you're his and you keep living a pattern of unrepentant sin, are you testifying more for the world or for God and the way you live your life? Who do you represent? Imagine for a second, you know, imagine this for a second, Michael. You were in the you work for KB construction, right? Dream Builders is your where's your or dream finders is a competition, right? So imagine that I say I work for your company. I get on with your company, but every time I go out and I visit with people, I'm talking about Dreamfinders. Tell them what a great product that is. How long do you think I would last at KB? Not long. But that's what happens all over our world. People say they love God, but the way they live their life testify more to their love for the world. 1 John 2 says... Do not love the world or the things in the world. And this is the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And and if if those things drive you, and it's like H. B. Charles said at our retreat, he says, you get what you pursue. You pursue the world, you'll get the world. And it will ultimately leave you empty, just like it did Bron Clifford, who died penniless, and not even caring for his own special needs children. What kind of guy does that? A worldly guy, not a godly guy. Well, what are the perils of apostasy? Well, verses 26 through 31, you know, and I crack up. I was on a plane one time. I've told you guys this before. And a lady, we, we got in this conversation about God's wrath and hell and Well, my God wouldn't do that. My God's a God of love. He's not a God of hate and judgment. She doesn't know the God of the Bible then. Because this is pretty clear. I mean, this language is unambiguous. Look at what it says in verse 26. B, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. You know what the first peril is? There's no right relationship with God. Because if there's no sacrifice, there's no God connection. There's no remedy for our sin. Remember back in Hebrews chapter 6, it says it is impossible in the case of those who've been enlightened but reject to know God. They can't. There's no remedy for their sin in their life. I want you to imagine, you know, most people think, I'm, pretty, I'm not a bad person. You know, I don't, I don't do terrible things. I don't murder people. I don't, I'm not a drug addict. I don't do those kind of things. You know what Jesus said? He said if you look at a woman and lust after, it's like committing adultery. That displeases God. If you hate somebody, and I heard somebody say this just two days ago, I hate them. <clears throat> Jesus said it's like murder. So I want you to imagine in your thought life, not even your actions, just your thought life, how many times do you displease God every day? The fact that we're supposed to worship Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, do we do that every day? The fact that we're not supposed to take his name in vain, the fact that we're not supposed to lie, the fact that we're not supposed to covet, man, I really like what he has. I want that car. Not what God's given me. Just in thought, if you only if you only had three sinful thoughts, three selfish thoughts a day, you'd be a pretty good person, wouldn't you? No. Nope. Think about that. Nope. No, you would. and most of our view, you'd be a pretty... Three sinful thoughts a day. If you multiply that through a year, that's what? A thousand sins. How old are you, Ken, Forty-four. 68. So 68. So we won't even count the first 13 years of your life. That's 55,000 sins. 55,000 sins. Now, if a criminal had committed 55,000 crimes and came before a judge. And he goes, Judge, just give me mercy. Give me mercy. And the judge goes, Okay, you're free. What would you think? There's, there's no justice there. In California. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only you would say that. that right. And you're, you're 90 years old, so you have a right to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. I want to remind you, back in Numbers 15, Listen to what this says. Numbers 15, starting in verse 32, I think. Numbers 15. This is God's view of sin. And you go, I just want you to think about this, what he did to this guy. This is, (laughs) I mean, you think about this and you go, wow, that's pretty, okay, Verse 32, while the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him in custody because it had not been made clear what they should do to him. The guy's out just picking up sticks on the Sabbath. He's not supposed to. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death and all the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp and all the congregation brought him outside the camp and they stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. For picking up sticks. The issue was not what he did. It was who he did it against. You see, when you commit adultery, When you lie, when you covet, when you break God's law, you're breaking the supreme law of the universe, the one true living God that gives life to whoever He wants and takes life from whoever He wants. And he made an example of that man to say, I value the Sabbath. It's supposed to be your day to think about me, to rest in me as a reminder to my people that they rest in me. What about Luke 16? You think it's just the Old Testament In Luke 16? It's the story of a rich man and a guy named Lazarus. This rich man had a table. Lazarus was this beggar who would come and get the food that, that basically the dogs would eat, the scraps would eat. He was a man who, who was, had nothing. And the rich man did nothing for him. And when they died, the rich man went to hell. Lazarus went into the bosom of Abraham. And it tells a story in there. And Jesus is telling this story. We don't know if it's just a parable or a truth. It could be either. But it doesn't matter. Jesus is telling it. And he said uh, He's telling the story to illustrate a point that the rich man said, please, it's awful here. Send somebody to my brothers. Let me go back and warn them so that they won't be in this awful place. And you know what God said, or Abraham said? He said, Hey, they have the word, they have the scriptures. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe a ghost. Yeah, judgment and wrath is coming. That's a peril, God's judgment. Well, he goes on to say, Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has? And listen to this. Spurn the son of God. First of all, the person dishonors God. Then he says, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. He's talking about Jesus there. So he's, he's not only profaned God, he's profaned Jesus. And then third, he says, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. And he's outraged the Holy Spirit. So the apostate dishonors all of them. When you get the full story and you reject it, you dishonor God, you dishonor Jesus, and you dishonor the Holy Spirit. There's nothing that can help you. It's a fearful thing, he says, to fall into the hands of a living God. But then he tells them how to be protected from that. Verse 20 or 32. But recall the former days. So here it is. Three things. First, remember the past truth. Remember what you were taught. You were enlightened. You actually endured. You were doing the work. Think about those things. Think about what the message was. He says, remember the past truth. Then he says in verse 34, to remember the future rewards. Look down here, he says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. In other words, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, these are light and momentary afflictions compared to what awaits on the other side of death. Because we don't die. We live in his presence. So remember the past truth. Remember the future rewards. Do his will and receive what is promised, he says. And then finally, in verse 38 and 39, he said, Remember the promised gift. My righteous one shall live by faith. He quotes Habakkuk 2, 3, 4. And what's interesting is Habakkuk is about Israel's apostasy. And he quotes that. And he says, he says in verse thirty-eight, "My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him." That's a direct quote from Habakkuk. What is the number on that? Habakkuk two, three, and four. Say that again. Um, Habakkuk no, 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 no. two. No, my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, guys, can I just say, don't shrink back. Hearing and agreeing with the Gospel is not security in the Gospel. Do you understand? You can hear. These people heard and they believed simply because they acknowledged with their head and they acknowledge intellectual understanding that they were secure. It's faith. I can say, look. I have faith... I have faith in that chair. I believe that chair will hold me up. I can talk about it all day long. I can agree with others that it will do it. But until I sit in it, I never have faith in it. The faith only becomes a reality of proof to others when I come and I sit in it. Without that, All I'm doing is talking I've never embraced and I'm certainly not witnessing. And we were called to be his witnesses. It can't happen. So Acts 17.30 says this, God overlooked times of ignorance. But now, Noah, when Noah was uh, told that the world was going to be destroyed, there was a period of 120 years he gave for people to do it. We've had a couple of thousand years but He's coming back and He's going to deal with sin. The question is, where am I? Am I loyal to God? Do I really embrace it? Do I have faith? Because see, God created you and me for a dependent relationship. One in which when we wake up in the morning, we, de- we are dependent upon Him. Not only for our daily activities, but for our eternal soul's destiny. We are His kids. He created us to be in relationship. But because of our selfishness and our self-ledness, the Bible says that relationship was broken. And because it's broken, the Bible says we earn eternal separation from God. So there's not going to be any family reunions in hell. doesn't matter what your dad did, what your mom did, what other people have done. It matters what you do because if you're in hell with your relatives, it ain't going to be no love there. It's pain, suffering, and torment. It's a real place, real wrath from God. And the Bible says that that's what we earn apart from Jesus Christ. See, 2,000 years ago, God sent Jesus to come to the earth, and he came to show what it looked like to be fully devoted to God, fully enveloped by the Spirit and living a life where the Spirit leads you. That's what Jesus did. It wasn't just to come do a bunch of miracles. It was the miracles were to attest that He was the one sent from God. He was God's Son, the Messiah. And the Bible says, He said, I'm going to die on a cross three days later. I'm going to rise again to prove I have victory over death. And anyone who believes in Me, not just in the facts of My death on the cross, but if you believe in Me and you have faith in Me, then I will come And give you a new soul, a new spirit inside you. And I'll begin to grow your heart for my father. And you will be my servant out in the world. And he's done it to thousands and millions of people throughout time. Now, there's a lot of people in America that would say they're in that category, but they are apostate. Why? Because they've received the knowledge, but they've departed from him. So as we close our time today. I'm going to ask you right where you are just to bow your head and ask, ask, ask yourself this question. Where am I with God? And who am I really loyal to? Am I loyal to anybody above God? If you are loyal to anybody or anything above God, you are at best just a sinner still in need of grace. Worst case, if you know Jesus story and you know about him you're an apostate but you don't have to stay an apostate father I just pray for anyone here today who has heard your word and the conviction of your spirit Lord has illuminated their need for you that right where they are right now in their own words they would acknowledge to you their need and in the quietness of your heart right where you are God knows our thoughts you can just acknowledge him I know I need you and I know I have not been following you and acknowledge that right now where you are that you want to place your faith in his son Jesus and what he did on the cross to be the only thing you will ever need to be in a right relationship with him. You want to receive that. Father, I pray that anyone today who trusted you, who says yes to you, you would make your home with them. You would encourage them and bring truth to them. Bring people around them that would help that truth to flourish inside of them and grow their hearts for you and use them as your servants, to put you on display to our hurting world. We love you, and we praise you. Amen. Amen.